0: We want to welcome you today. Uh, It's so great to be with you and to worship with you. Uh, I want to pray as we get started. Um, I want to specifically pray for just this whole COVID situation. You've got people in your life that are sick and hurting. Um, maybe you've lost somebody. We all know the stories of how busy the hospitals are, and uh, some of you are in healthcare and you're living it every day and every shift. And so thank you for your service, and I know that it's got to get tiring. And so we want to be praying for that. Um, we have a bunch of high schoolers in Michigan today. They've been up there all weekend long for a great retreat, and so they're going to be traveling home this afternoon with their leaders. So I want to pray for their return and then just pray for our time study through John together today. So let's pray together as we get started. Uh, Father, we thank you for who you are, for your great love for us, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and our great healer. And Father, we continue to come before you. We are pleading with you, Lord, for healing in our land, in our community. Uh, Father, we want people to know Christ and to turn to Christ. We We want to live for you in this role. We know that's the kind of healing that you are after, but we know that you are a God that can heal lives, that can heal illness and disease. And Father, we are asking for your healing work uh, in the people we know and love, even those that we don't know, Lord. We're praying for the situation in so many hospitals right now with so many people there and so many that are sick, Lord. Bring glory to yourself and bring miracles to these hospitals, Lord, that people will be healed and be able to go home, that care will be there for those that need it. I pray for all of the health care workers that are working tireless, tirelessly and week after week, Lord, that you'd continue to give them strength, that they would know your presence and they would serve you well in this world. We are trusting you for healing, Lord, in our community. All around this country and around this world And we pray this and ask this in the name of Jesus We are also praying for our students And leaders, thank you We are trusting Lord that they had a great time this weekend And that the work you started In their hearts and lives Lord That you'll continue it even as they come home We pray for their protection and safety As they're traveling back today And Father we come before you now And just continue to ask for your work in our hearts and lives As we study through your word today We want to grow in faith We want to grow in faith as individuals We want to grow in faith uh, as a church family. And so use this time now and speak through me, through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the third week of a series that we're calling Grow here at Genesis, where we're inviting everyone to study through the book of John with us this year as we do this together. Our prayer is that we wanna grow. I wanna grow in my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You want that. We wanna grow together uh, as a church family at the same time. And if you haven't already, I wanna invite you to pick up a journal back at the Info Hub. We've got a gift there for you, for everyone. So grab one of those before you leave today if you haven't. And in that journal is a... Handout that'll tell you a little bit more about our series. There's a reading plan in there so that you can follow along on your own in reading through John. And then on the very back, there's a Bible study method that many of you are familiar with, uh, a method called the SOAPs method. And this is a method that you could use when you sit down on your own on a Monday or on a Wednesday and you're reading through John, where you can just ask questions of the scripture that you're reading. It's a method that's intended to help you better. Uh, Better hear the voice of God as you're studying on your own. This is the method I use when I study uh, the Bible on my own. I know it's something that's worked for many of you. Anyone can do it. And uh, so there's more explanation on that SOAP study in here. But I want to tell you about something that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We're going to host what we're calling our SOAP's workshop uh, here at Genesis on Saturday morning, uh, January 29th from 9 to 11. We want to invite you to come and be a part of that if you've ever wanted to know. Like, how do you study the Bible on your own? Uh, And so we want to teach you the SOAPS method and work through it with you. And it's kid-friendly. We're saying about ages 8 and up. If you've got a kid in your house, you know what? This this is a good opportunity for them to learn as well. Uh, We're kind of preparing the seminar with them in mind too. And so you're invited to come and learn, to come and learn with your kids. Like, how cool for those of you that with the family even could be reading through this uh, with your family, with those that are living in your house together, studying John together for all of us, for our connection groups, uh, that we can do this together. So come check it out on Saturday, January 29th. But why are we studying John? Like, why are we setting aside all this time in John? Well, our goal is to accomplish what I think John wanted to accomplish, and he outlines the purpose for his writing at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, John the disciple. Says this, but these are written. Basically, these words, the Gospel of John, these account- accounts, these encounters, uh, the words that I've recorded uh, from Jesus, I've put them together. I've, I've the the Lord. I mean, I believe that God is inspiring John in this. He says, but he says, I've written these words that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Again, this is the goal of John's biographical work of the life and teachings of Jesus. And I'll add, I think it's his prayer for every person that reads it too, that that he says that these are written that you may believe. That word believe is the Greek word pastuo. You want to learn a Greek word? Say it with me. Pastuo, all right? It's a word. It means believe, but it's more than just belief. It's to place your confidence in, to entrust yourself to the thing that you believe in by faith, all right? It's Again, this word pastu, John uses the word 98 times in his gospel. It's a verb, which means it's active. And so it means to believe, to accept something as true, but then to keep on believing. You think it, you realize it, but then you put it into practice in your life. The way that you think, your actions, everything that you do, you keep on believing. You grow in your believing so that you have everything that you need for everything that life may ever throw at you. Back to John 20, 31. He says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he says, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Emphasis on the word life. All right, Like, believe, you're going to see the word life over and over as you read through John. What John is trying to emphasize is that there's a life out there. There's a life that we all hope for, that we're all searching for, whether we realize it or not. And John's trying to emphasize that there is a life to be lived, a satisfying, fulfilling, better than you could ever imagine or expect life available to anyone and everyone through faith in Jesus Christ. We sometimes refer to it as eternal life which means it is a life for the future. It is a life as followers of Jesus that we can cling to and hope to on the other side of this life when, when you pass one day, when you go to be with Jesus, but it's for today as well. And John's going to stress that over and over again. This kind of life is available today. It's available for tomorrow. Like eternal life begins the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then its promises are true for all of eternity. And so what John knows and what he hopes we experience and realize is that the more and more time you spend with Jesus the more and more time you spend in his word and on your own, that our faith and our belief will increase each day, that it will grow and it's going to get stronger and stronger each day as we trust Jesus with every part of our lives. All right, so John chapter 1, if you've got a Bible uh, with you, we're going to put the words on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to have one. There are some in the back of the room. If you get one now or you get one on the way out today, you're welcome to pick up a copy of that Bible. It's our gift to you. But turn to John chapter 1 if you haven't already. Last week, Ben, who was up here just a moment ago, walked us through the prologue or the first 18 verses of John. The prologue is extremely important as John uses it to outline many of the themes that he's going to touch on throughout the course of his gospel. And in the middle of it all, he introduces us to a man named John the Baptist. Now, we need to be very clear here. We have John the disciple, all right, who is the writer of what we know as the gospel of John, which we're looking at this year, all right, and we also have John the Baptist. These are two different people. All right, two different individuals. You've got John the disciple and John the Baptist, or I sometimes refer to him as JTB, or that's how I write it in my notes, all right? And so you might hear me go either way with him. But here's what the disciple John says about John the Baptist. We looked at this last week. Maybe you read it this past week in John chapter 1, actually beginning in verse 6. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. JTB, this is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness. To the light. Now, there are three other gospel writers in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which precede John. They provide some additional details and accounts about the life of John the Baptist that John the disciple leaves out. They let us know that John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and a woman named Elizabeth who were old and not able to have children, but then an angel got involved, and then there was this promise from God about a baby boy who would come through them with this special assignment to help point people to Jesus, and wouldn't you know, Elizabeth got pregnant, and nine months later, John the Baptist was born, and just a fun fact about him, John the Baptist had a second cousin, someone a little younger than him, a boy named Jesus. Now, what do we learn about John the Baptist from John, though, in his gospel? John says that John the Baptist was a man sent from God, all right, as the text says, that there was this special calling, if you would, or assignment on his life, and he was sent by God as a witness, Now, what does a witness do? Well, if you've ever been a witness to a trial or have had to give testimony to something, a witness testifies to what they have seen and heard. When I was 17 years old... My sister Kara and I were traveling home. I was driving. We were going home from church, actually. And as we were going through an intersection, a car coming towards us turned in front of us and we had a head on collision. Now, thankfully, it wasn't a serious accident. We all walked away from it. I had to give testimony to the police officers about what I saw. Thankfully, there were other witnesses. Who saw what happened on this occasion, they gave testimony to say that it wasn't my fault, that it was clearly the fault of the other driver. Put yourself in the disciple John's shoes. You're writing a story, an account to help people grow in their faith in Jesus. You need witnesses to testify to what they've seen and what they've heard. Why not start with John the Baptist? He's an ideal witness. And what did John the Baptist do? come to do according to John. He was sent as a witness to tell others about Jesus. And we're told in Matthew chapter 3, you can look at this on your own later, that people from all over Judea and Jerusalem were going out into the wilderness to hear John the Baptist preach. And they confessed their sins to him. They were baptized in the Jordan River. That's why he's called John the Baptist. I hope you don't think that was his last name. It's not his last name. He was just a baptizer. That's what he's known for. And so they call him John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, minister ministry and influence was growing so quickly in Israel, so much that it caught the Jewish leader's attention in Jerusalem. And so they're curious about him. They're going to send out a delegation to check in on him to see what all the uproar is about. They go and find him. According to verse 28, which we'll look at in just a moment, John was at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Here's a map. Uh, for those of you that like maps, this is Israel, with Jerusalem being in the very center of the country. We're going to read about Jerusalem a lot in John. It's the the religious center. It's the capital of Israel. Jerusalem sits at a higher elevation in the mountains, so you always go up to Jerusalem. There are four major bodies of water that kind of interact with Israel: the Mediterranean Sea. There's the Dead Sea here to the south. There's the Sea of Galilee to the north where we'll find Jesus doing a lot of ministry with his disciples in the weeks to come. The Jordan River flows out of the north. It's the melting snow of Mount Hermon and flows into the Sea of Galilee and then continues south on the Jordan River plain. And down here near the Dead Sea is this place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And if you go there someday, here's a picture of that area. This is the Jordan River today. It was likely much wider back in the days of Jesus. Now today, because of the irrigation and the agricultural work that they do in the area, the Jordan River is much narrower, but that just kind of gives you an idea of what the region is like. And this is where John the Baptist is, and let's pick it up in verse 19. John the disciple writes this. Now this was John's testimony, John the Baptist, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him to ask John the Baptist who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And there's a lot you can learn about John the Baptist right here. We'll talk about that in a moment, but also this group that John the disciple calls the Jewish leaders. Now, why are they important? Well, think about this. What do most great stories have in common? number of things. If we were to think about them, if we were to go around the room, you could say things like a captivating plot, um, the, something to be resolved over the course of a story, also things like good guys and bad guys. And in John's gospel, people like Jesus and John the Baptist are the good guys, and the Jewish leaders, at least most of them, are the bad guys and we meet them early on in John's gospel because they're going to play an important part in John's story, more importantly in Jesus' story. Many of them are going to learn to despise Jesus to the point that they will be the ones to ultimately crucify Jesus on the cross. And so the Jewish leaders go down to John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness, people have gathered with him, he's preaching, and they've got some questions for him. And what does the text say? They ask, "Are you the Messiah?" Are, are you Elijah? Are you the, the prophet? These are important questions in first century Israel. And the Jewish people, including these leaders, were waiting for the promised Messiah. And so they wonder, could John the Baptist be the Messiah? Again, there are intriguing things about him that, that mean that he could be the one. How about Elijah? Now, why Elijah? Well, he played an important role in the Older Testament period, and Malachi chapter 4 talks about how Elijah would return in the final days before the Messiah comes, or the prophet, they asked. That's another reference to the Older Testament period, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses talks about a great prophet that would accompany the arrival of the Messiah. So they're curious. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet to each of these John the Baptist replies no, but the Jewish leaders aren't satisfied with that answer, and so they ask him, they keep pushing, who are you? It's an important question. John's got it there for a reason, and it's an important question for John the Baptist to answer. It's an important question that disciple John certainly has wrestled with in his life. It's an important question for all of us. That question, like when you get down to it, when you think about your life, when you think about why you're here, your role, your purpose, who are you? Or let's say this, what, what do you say about yourself? What's the point of your life? We all have to answer that question in some way, shape, or form. There's a lot of young people today wrestling with questions like this one. Not just young people either. I mean, it's adults too, and it's a revealing question, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, like how you answer a question like this one, says a lot about how you see yourself, how you see your purpose, how you see your relationship with God, your relationship with Jesus, how you understand the good news of Jesus Christ and how that's working in your life and certainly what the good news of Jesus Christ means to people around you in and and out of your life. How does John the Baptist answer the question? Well, look at verse 23. Here's what John said to them. He says, "'In the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice.'" of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Here's what John the Baptist does. He reaches back to the Old Testament period, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3 in particular, a passage of Scripture that these Jewish leaders knew very well, something they were familiar with. Let's look at the Old Testament words in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Here's what John the Baptist was referring to, these words of a voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I want to point out that John the Baptist clearly understood who he was and who he wasn't. He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Jesus. But I am a voice, a voice sent by God. I am here to give testimony about the Messiah. Most importantly, I'm here to point people to Jesus. And what John the Baptist realizes about his life, his calling, his assignment, is what every single one of us that would call ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ must understand and see about ourselves too. That if you know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, if you have trusted him with your life and received his eternal life and all of the promises and guarantees that come with that, you, you're a voice for Jesus in this world. Parents, you're a, you're a voice for Jesus Christ right now in your home and amongst your kids. Uh, students, you are a voice for Jesus Christ amongst your peers and on your team and at your school and the, the people that you're around all day long. Like you're, you're a voice for Jesus at your work. You're a voice for Jesus in your neighborhood. You're a voice for Jesus on social media. Careful with that one. It's what's true of our church as well. Like we're here as a church. We exist to be a voice for Jesus, to point people to Jesus, or as we like to say around Genesis, to help people find their way back to God. And so John the Baptist says, I'm a voice. I'm sent by God. Make straight the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Scholar William Barclay explains how eastern uh, ancient roads weren't very well surfaced. But when a king was expected in a particular location or region, extensive work would be done to prepare and to smooth the roads for the arrival of the king. And so this is John the Baptist's way of saying, get ready, prepare your hearts, prepare your hearts for King Jesus because the king is coming. And how did the Jewish leaders respond to his answer and his explanation? Verse 24, it says, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, or the prophet? And so they kind of ignore his answers and explanation, if you would, and their attention shifts to baptism, and they ask, why are you baptizing people? Now, here's what's interesting about baptism for John the Baptist and specifically for the Jewish people baptism for the Jews was a lot different than how we see and celebrate baptism as Christians today because back then, baptism represented a way, a couple of things. It represented a way for Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, to convert to the Jewish faith. Uh, It provided an opportunity for people to repent of their sins and to be cleansed from them. And you could also say that it was a way of getting ready for what they believed that God would eventually do but Jesus is going to come on the scene. He's going to usher in a whole different way of baptism, specifically through his death and resurrection. It's the baptism that we celebrate today as a church. It's the baptism that many of you have experienced with your own life and that some of you, Lord willing, are going to experience in a couple of weeks. What does baptism mean for us today as Christians? It's a symbol of what has already been accomplished in your life. That you don't become a believer when you're baptized but baptism is a picture of what's already happened in you. So that when you see, when we see someone go into the water in baptism, it's a picture of Jesus' death and burial. It's a way of saying, I've died with him. My my sins are forgiven because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the decision that I've made to put my faith and trust in him. When you see someone emerge up out of the water, it's a picture of Jesus' resurrection. It's a way of saying that by the grace of God, I'm raised with Jesus Christ, and I am walking now a brand new life in him. That's why we proclaim, I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive in Jesus Christ. Who should be baptized then? Well, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and trusted him with your faith and and his forgiveness for sins in your life, and you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. And you should do it in a couple of weeks when we celebrate baptism here. If you're ready to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to receive his forgiveness and to follow him, you should be baptized. And we'd love to talk with you about these things. Again, Jesus was baptized. He told us that we should be baptized. And on Sunday, January the 30th, we're going to celebrate baptism together here. And Lord willing, we're going to baptize kids and students and men and women who are ready to follow Jesus. What are you waiting for? Like, what's holding you back, you know, from making this important decision in your life to go public with your faith and say, I've been forgiven. I am dead to sin, but I'm alive in Jesus Christ, and I want to follow Jesus with every day and every moment and every opportunity that I have in this world. John the Baptist is baptizing. It's a different kind of baptism. But the point is that something special is happening. God's preparing hearts. Jesus is about to come onto the scene and just as promised, he's using John the Baptist to prepare the way. And so John the Baptist replies to the Jewish leaders in verse 26. He says, I'm baptizing with water, but among you stands one you don't know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This all happened again at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. I don't know, by the way, if you can see the humility in John the Baptist. Like, it's almost as if he's getting uncomfortable with the attention. Like, you see it in his words. He says, Among you stands one who you do not know, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. What's that about? There was a saying in the Jewish culture that if you wanted to be the student of a teacher, if you wanted to be the follower of a rabbi, you must be willing to go to whatever length to do whatever they ask you to do, except you were exempt from untying the straps of their sandals because that's disgusting. All right? You want to think about what they walked around in all day long. That's a job meant for the lowest of servants, and John the Baptist says, You want to know how unimportant, how un- or insignificant I am? I'm not even on, un- I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is the same John the Baptist, by the way. We'll see this in a few weeks, who in John chapter 3 says, Jesus must increase, I gotta decrease. Or as we've been saying around this greater event, Jesus, we want you to be greater, we want to be less. Well, verse 29 marks a new day. It literally does. It's a big moment in John the Baptist's ministry. And look at how John the disciple records it. He says, the next day. All right. So the next day. So he's providing some level of a chronology here. But he says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Imagine you're John the Baptist and you see Jesus coming. And by the way, John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus, and John doesn't even talk about it, all right? The disciple John doesn't even mention it. Like you got to go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke for those details. But what the writer John does include here is really important, because John the Baptist looks at Jesus, and John records his words. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, why does he call him the Lamb of God? Well, when John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God, he's likely referring to one of at least a couple of things from the Older Testament period that these Jewish people would have been aware of. First was the idea of a sacrificial lamb. And back in ancient Israel, when people sinned, they would take a lamb to the temple and the lamb would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the people were never told exactly why they had to do this. They just trusted God and they went with it. And every time then a lamb was sacrificed in the temple, really when you think about it, it was just one more opportunity to look ahead to the day that the Messiah would come and the sacrifice would no longer be needed. But the second thing, Thing that John the Baptist could have been referring back to was the Passover. Now remember the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. The, the Jews were told to slaughter slaughter a lamb on the night of the Passover when the angel of death was going to pass over the homes in Egypt. And the instruction was that if the blood of the lamb wasn't painted around the doorposts of the home, the firstborn son in the home would die. And so the Jewish people were instructed to kill a lamb, wipe the blood across the door frames of their homes, and as God promised, the angel of death then would pass over their home and no child or son would be taken. Can you, see, can you see why the lamb had significance to the people then, specifically the blood of the lamb and why it meant so much to John the Baptist and the Jewish people? But I'll say this, John the Baptist's specific words are of even greater importance because when the lambs were sacrificed in the temple, it was to cover over the people's sins. For a period of time, because most likely as soon as they walked away and sin once again entered their lives, they were just as guilty as when they came. But that's not what John the Baptist says, because if you look specifically at the text, if you've got your Bible open, he doesn't say the lamb who covers, but he says, no, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, John the Baptist understood that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who came to do something unlike anything that had ever been done before. And what was that? To take away the sins, to remove them once and for all, to die so that we could be forgiven, to provide a solution to the problem of guilt and pain and punishment, and not just temporarily, but to do this permanently once and for all and forever. And that's why the Apostle Paul, many years after Jesus ascended into heaven, would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ, that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As Christians, we get to look back with confidence and faith, and know that it happened, that it's been accomplished, that Jesus died and provided a solution to the problem of sin. For John the Baptist, he's looking forward in faith, believing this is what Jesus came to do. Again, let's look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now John the Baptist says, I don't know him, but that's not true. Because remember, they're cousins and likely spent a lot of time together growing up. And so what he likely means is that he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, until... We read this as we continue. It says, then John gave this testimony, John the Baptist, and he's referring back to this moment that he baptized Jesus. He said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. Who's he talking about there? He says, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, there's a lot going on there, but how did John the Baptist know? Well, God told him. Like, how did John the Baptist know this is Jesus? God told him. And John the Baptist, as John records, saw the Holy Spirit come down and remain on Jesus And you know what? We can't even begin. I can't even begin to understand how significant that moment is or was that John is referring to. Because up until this time in history, God would send the Holy Spirit to certain people for a certain time and for a certain occasion, for a special assignment. And then the Holy Spirit would be removed. But John, John the Baptist, points out something remarkable here. And the disciple John records it that the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and what's the word? And remained on Jesus. And in that moment, John the Baptist knew, and what he knew, John the excuse me, John the Disciple wants us to see and to realize, and that is that Jesus is the one. This is God's chosen one. This is the one that we've all been waiting for. And for the people then, all right, for the people living during this day, like what this meant is that this is the promised Messiah. Like it all adds up to Jesus. He is here. He is everything that we have ever been waiting for. He is God's promised one, the chosen one. He has finally arrived. It's true for us today as well. True for us as Christians, as we look at these words, as we're reminded that Jesus is the one, it's true for you. For those of you that are here today that would say, you know what, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual seeker. I, I really don't know what I think about any of this or, you know, Jesus or God or whatever, like Jesus is the one. He is God's chosen one. This is what we believe as a church. This is what we're hinging everything on as followers of Jesus, that Jesus is everything we have ever needed, that everything we've ever gone looking for is available to us in Jesus, that he is our, our salvation, that he is our hope, uh, that he is our healer, that he is, we, we, we call him redeemer. He is the victorious one. He is our provider. He is everything that we need. But how often, I mean, we got to ask ourselves, like, do we, do we care? Do we forget... I mean, think about how easy it is when you go through difficult times, when you go through challenges, when you go through something like we've gone through these past couple of years, like that we forget or we quit paying attention, or like when we wonder like, where is our faith and our hope? The reality is that our faith and our hope is still in Jesus Christ. It is still in God's promised one who came and gave his life and is risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven today. Our hope is in him, our faith is in him. This is the good. News? Do we care? Do we grasp onto it? Are we letting it change us? Are we letting it influence our lives? Last Sunday morning, my family woke up in Florida. Have you ever been to Florida in January? It's glorious. Like it is a picture of heaven. It's it's wonderful. I mean, one of these days you're gonna wonder where's Paul in the winter time. Paul's in Florida. That's where he is. He is in Florida. And so we were at Grandpa's house for for three or four days. Like and it was just so good. I mean, 70 degrees. I mean, I get my cup of coffee in the morning. We just we go outside and just sit on the driveway. We just sit on the drive. We'd lay down on the driveway during the day and the sun and the heat, people are probably wandering by. Wonder what in the world's going on. I knew what was in Indiana. Like I knew what we were coming back to, but we woke up last Sunday morning. We were supposed to fly out about 11.30 last Sunday morning, and about 6 a.m. I woke up, and I looked at my phone, and I got a notice from the airline that our flight had been canceled, and uh, so we started you know, doing some work at that point. We contacted the airlines, and like, we're sorry. We can't get you out till Tuesday, which, you know, and thinking about it, it's like, well, great. We'll just stay in Florida for a couple of extra days, but there are like jobs and school and all this stuff, and so ultimately, we had to make the painful decision last Sunday morning that we were going to drive back from Orlando. How many of you have ever made the drive from Florida to Indiana? It's a long drive. Georgia is a very, very long state. And so this is how our vacation's gonna end. We pack up the vehicle. We are on our way. We are getting about to the Georgia-Florida line, all right? And uh, uh, I just, it's been, it's about 11.30 now. I check my email. There's an email from the airline saying, we are sorry that your flight was canceled this morning. We are pleased to let you know that we have rebooked you on another airline for an 11.30 a.m. flight through Dallas and into Indianapolis at about 7 p.m. tonight. We're two hours north of Indy. It's 1130. There are people flying in the air on their way to Dallas, and we are driving now. Like, you know how hard it was driving through Nashville at about 930 p.m. last Sunday night? Like, when we pulled into the south side of Indianapolis around 1 in the morning last Sunday night, like, really, we could be home. We could have made it home. The news was there for us, and we missed it. Look at the words of John the Baptist again as the disciple John records them. I like how the ESV translates them. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The word behold is so much more than just looking at or making a quick glance. It means to look intensely, to lock eyes, to realize what's before you, and to embrace it completely think about it. When you behold something like a beautiful sunset, a mountain range, or maybe the side of the ocean for a first time or the first time in a long time, you stare at it. You take it in. You want what you see to get into your brain and to fill your heart and your mind. You want whatever you're beholding to be something you don't forget. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, if you're not following Jesus yet, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, I want to invite you to behold Jesus today. I want to invite you to behold him, to to look at the cross, to receive his forgiveness and his life, his eternal life that Jesus offers to you. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your track record, what people have said about you or are still saying about you. Jesus is for you that God created you and he loves you. And it's because of sin that we've all turned away from God. We've all turned our backs on and gone our own way. We're all guilty of sin and the punishment for our sin and rebellion is death and separation from God for all of eternity in a place that Jesus called hell. Here's the bad news. It's recorded in the second half. There's good news too, so hang on. But in John three thirty-six, Jesus said in the second half that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, that's the bad news, but here's the good news. It's in the first half of the verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So what does he say? He says, whoever believes my word, all right, and believes, again, grasp onto it, beholds it, will not be judged, all right? Again, the, the second half is the bad news. The first half is the good news that God has provided a lamb, a lamb in Jesus' Christ, who went to the cross and gave his life on our behalf as a sacrifice in our place. And the message of Jesus is that whoever believes in Jesus is freed from God's punishment and receives eternal life. Jesus said this about the good news. In John five twenty four. Jesus said, these are his words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Again, Jesus says whoever hears my word and believes will not be judged. They have crossed from death to life. Apart from Jesus, you are destined to die. Through Jesus, the Lamb of God, he offers you his life. Behold, grasp onto it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus offers himself to you. Behold, behold believe. And the good news, this good news of Jesus Christ, while it's for those who have never put their faith in him, the good news of Jesus Christ, friends, followers of Jesus, is for you as well. Every day, each day, every moment, every circumstance of your life, the good news of Jesus is for anyone who has put their faith and trust in him. It's not a once and done sort of thing. This is my ticket to heaven. No, John the Baptist is inviting us to behold Jesus every day of our lives. That means today. That means through all of the ups and downs and uncertainties and frustrations, some of you need to reach out and behold Jesus today with your heart and with your mind and reach out for him and refocus your attention on him and seek him and receive his love, and know that he is there for you, and be reminded that he died for you, and he's given you life. Seek him. Behold him. I love these words that I'll close with from Christine Kane. She says, there is no heart God cannot mend. There is no wound that our God cannot heal. There is no pain that God cannot redeem. There is no enemy that God cannot defeat. There is no bondage he cannot break. There is no need that God cannot meet. There is no mountain that God can't move. There is no relationship that our God cannot restore. There is nothing our God cannot do. Behold Jesus, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you provided a way, a solution in your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lived and gave his life and died. You raised him from the dead, Lord. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated with you victoriously today. And he wants to be a friend for us, a Savior. He gave his life so that we could have life through him. He gave his life so that we could believe and keep on believing. And grow and keep on growing in our faith so that through Jesus Christ we have and need and receive everything that we'll ever need in this world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope that you offer to us in Jesus. Friends, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never invited Christ to be the Lord of your life, to be the forgiver of your sins, you can do that today wherever you're seated. Just pray to him. Just speak out the words to him, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. Forgive me, cleanse me, heal me. Behold Jesus today. What would hold you back from making a decision like that? He offers himself to you. He offers his life to you. Behold Jesus, the Lamb of God. He is for you. He gave his life for you. Receive his life and love today. And Father, I also pray for those that are here today that know you, that have given their lives to you, but maybe have drifted. Maybe life circumstances have them beaten up. Maybe they've gotten focused on other things. We all get distracted. It's so easy to wander, Lord. I pray that today would be the day that we come on back and behold Jesus, our great friend. Father, strengthen our faith today. Renew our hearts our faith, and our love for you. I pray that around this room right now, people would experience your love in a powerful way, your presence. Change us, Lord, today and in the days to come. We want to be a voice for you. We want to lean on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.